Welcome to the OK School Me podcast. I'm Dr. Mako Fitzward, Director of the Social Transformation Lab at Arizona State University. In this episode, we dive into LGBTQIA activism, which works toward equality, equity, and justice for queer, trans, and non-binary communities and the allies and co-conspirators who love and support them. This work is multifaceted and consists of a wide range of movements and activities, including securing equal rights for LGBTQIA individuals, combating employment and housing discrimination, participating in direct action for access to appropriate health care, as well as preventing and responding to forms of violence and so much more. Across the country, new bills are popping up in our communities and moving through state legislatures regarding the rights of K-12 students and their parents, free speech and expression, and civil rights. For example, here in Arizona, there are four Senate bills that stigmatize, restrict, and criminalize drag performances. Senate Bill 1026, sponsored by State Senator John Kavanaugh, would prohibit state money to be used to fund drag shows targeting minors, like Drag Story Hour or even a production of the musical Hairspray. Under Senate Bill 1698, sponsored by State Senator Justine Wadsick, these drag shows would be labeled as adult-oriented businesses. While defining drag as singing, dancing, or a monologue or a skit performed by anyone dressing in clothes opposite to their gender at birth. Senator Anthony Kern is sponsoring two bills, Senate Bill 1028, which is motioning to criminalize drag performers or male-female impersonators that perform in a public space or any location that can be viewed by minors, and SB 1030, which is similar to SB 1698 and would define any business that hosts drag shows as an adult-oriented business. It would also mandate permitting for drag shows and drag performers. Because of their loose definition of drag, these bills could be interpreted to criminalize a wide range of gendered experiences and expressions, as well as any trans person participating in performing arts. This is a clear threat to all trans people, as well as drag performers who would serve a minimum of five years in prison if someone under 18 sees their performance under one of the Senate bills. This is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the bills being presented around the country. To help move us through these conversations, we welcome ASU faculty David Boyles and Rebecca Simek to offer their thoughts and expertise on LGBTQIA activism in our state today. As always, Kyle McKinney will give us our learning moment. So let's begin our transformation for today and get this lesson started. Hi, I am Kyle McKinney, an interdisciplinary studies master's student at ASU focusing on diversity and sustainability work. Hi. I'm Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, a fourth-year Ph.D. gender studies student in the School of Social Transformation and a research assistant in the Social Transformation Lab at Arizona State University. In the last episode, we were joined by community leader Ashley Farrell and Dr. Carrie Sampson of Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at ASU to discuss the politicizing of education as it pertains to race, gender, and sexuality. In this episode, we will be discussing LGBTQ plus IA activism works towards equality, equity, and justice for the LGBTQIA community, or queer community for short, is multifaceted and consists of a wide range of movements and activities. This work includes decriminalizing homosexuality, combating employment and housing discrimination, participating in direct action for access to appropriate health care, 
preventing and responding to forms of violence, and so much more. Across the country, new bills are popping up in our communities and are moving through state legislators regarding the rights of K-12 through students and their parents, free speech and expression, and civil rights. For example, here in Arizona, there are four Senate bills that stigmatize, restrict, and criminalize drag performances alone. Senate Bill 1026, sponsored by State Senator John Kavanaugh, would prohibit state money to be used to fund drag shows targeting minors, like Drag Story Hour or even a production of the musical Hairspray. And with Senate Bill 1698, sponsored by State Senator Justine Wadsack, these drag shows would be labeled as adult-oriented businesses, while defining drag as singing, dancing, or a monologue or skit performed by anyone dressing in clothes opposite to their gender at birth. We then have Senator Anthony Kern sponsoring two other bills, Senate Bill 1028, which is motioning to criminalize drag performers or male-slash-female impersonators that perform in a public space or any location that can be viewed by minors, and SB 1030, which is similar to SB 1698 and would define any business that hosts drag shows as an adult-oriented business and would mandate a permit for drag shows and drag performers. Because of their loose definition of drag, these bills could be interpreted to criminalize a wide range of gendered experiences and expressions, as well as any trans person participating in the performing arts. This is a clear threat to all trans people in this field, as well as drag performers who could serve a minimum of five years in prison if someone under 18 sees their performance. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the bills being presented across our country. How can we move forward with all these insane motions that are plaguing the LGBTQ plus IA communities? Great question. To help us move through these things, we have David Boyles, instructor in English at ASU and president of Drag Story Hour Arizona, and Rebecca Simic, faculty associate in screenwriting and staff member of Glisten Arizona, to offer their thoughts and expertise on LGBTQIA plus activism today. So our first question is, what is the current landscape of LGBTQIA plus activism in Arizona? Uh, let me start. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you so much for um, having me here to talk about this. Um, and I would say the current moment, both in Arizona and nationally, because um, you can't really separate those things, um, is, you know, we're in this period which you see throughout history kind of happening cyclically of we've had a lot of advancement in um, LGBT, um, you know, visibility and in, you know, kind of tangible um, political gains with marriage equality and stuff like that. You know, we went from 15 years ago, 2008, no presidential candidate, including Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, supported marriage equality publicly. Um, and now we have, you know, we have marriage equality since 2015. We've had, in particular, the rise of um, trans visibility and rise mainstreaming of drag culture. And we see these bills now responding to that um, in this backlash. And we saw this in the 70s and early 80s. There was a backlash to the kind of, you know, post-Stonewall activism, which gave us Anita Bryant and eventually Ronald Reagan. Um, we saw this in the 90s um, with Bill Clinton first, you know, courting support of, gay, um, of the gay community and then you know, completely stabbing them in the back and signing the Defense of Marriage Act. So these cycles repeat. Um, as you get more visibility, you get certain political actors who want to benefit off of the, um, you know, 
the people who don't like this change and see it as scary. Um, and that's what we're seeing with all these bills. Um, these bills are about, you know, these Republican politicians watching Fox News, watching Tucker Carlson, and seeing that, what are the people who vote for me afraid of this week? Last week, it was Eminem's not being you know, sexy anymore or you know, gas stoves being illegal. This week, it's drag queens. And so we're going to introduce legislation uh, to ban that. It's you know, trans kids. Um, so we're going to introduce legislation to ban that. So it's about exploiting the fear um, and the backlash and the bigotry that has come up in response to the greater visibility and the gains that the movement has made in the last decade or so. The ACLU is currently tracking the progress of 426 anti-LGBT uh, bills moving through 44 states, including Arizona. Our state has 11 bills that curtail the civil rights of queer and trans folks around issues like free speech, expression, schools, education, and healthcare. Rebecca, what are the consequences of these bills should they pass? I mean, I think your question framed that really well, what the consequences are to public speech, to education. Um, what always comes to the front of my mind, especially with the work I do with Glisten Arizona, is the impact to young people, to students and their safety and not just their physical safety, but also their psychological safety and being totally bombarded constantly. Like you said, there's 426 bills across the country and we're not just isolated in Arizona, we hear about all these different bills across the country. And so hearing those things, being bombarded by this constant onslaught of uh, just antagonism towards the community, especially trans and drag uh, performers, um, we have to consider just how overwhelming that is for especially young people who are just figuring out who they are, but especially just everyone. I'm, a, I'm an adult and I'm overwhelmed. Like, I haven't even read all of these bills. There's just too many. It's too overwhelming. It's too confusing. And so I think that's okay, though, that I don't know everything there is about these bills. You know, I think I know what work I do well and how I can support the community. And that's what activism really is to me, is everyone doing what they're good at and, and leaning into that so that this whole movement works. And Rebecca, you mentioned GLSEN. And so, David, how are queer and trans rights activists countering these legislative efforts across the state? Mm. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's all, there's a lot of different things happening, and you have to attack it from a lot of different angles. Um, one thing being in Arizona, which is different than other states, is these bills aren't going to become law. Because um, Katie Hobbs has already said she's going to... Um, you know, veto them. I was just at the one in 10 fresh brunch yesterday. She spoke there reiterating that, you know, that all these bills will be vetoed. So in terms of the tangible laws going into effect, we're different than Tennessee, where these laws actually have gone into effect. Um, and the, you know, we have drag performers, you know, there that are having to, you know, navigate, you know, living in um, a landscape with this bill passed. Um, but as Rebecca said, these bills still do have a big effect, especially on young people. Um, and that, of course, is the purpose. It's um, the term is stochastic terrorism. Um, you are terrorizing a community, um, you know, mentally uh, by just sort of constantly bombarding them with this kind of hateful, uh, bigoted ideas and this idea that you're trying to make their existence illegal. Um, and so the big thing. I think locally, because these laws aren't going to become law, uh, we've been very focused on supporting the community, particularly in the work that we do with, you know, Glisten, Drag Story Hour, um, you know, creating spaces for our youth and families that feel, you know, scared, feel unwelcome in the state because of these bills. 
and, um, you know, just providing space for them while also, you know, educating people on these bills, explaining what they actually do, why, you know, they are very blatantly unconstitutional in the case of the drag bans, why they fly in the face of all uh, mainstream medical science in the case of the gender affirming care bans. Um, so we've been doing that. And so, you know, Glisten Drag Story Hour, we've been focusing on the sort of community aspects and then groups like HRC, Equality Arizona have been really focused on education and explaining what these bills are and trying to, yeah, kind of weed through the onslaught, you know, of all these bills um, to educate people as best they can. It's really about providing a counter narrative mm-hmm. to to a lot of what the rhetoric is around yeah. um, LGBTQ+. A, you know, a, a narrative based in fact. You know? right. <laughs> um, so drag story hours have been interrupted by armed protesters in places like Ohio, Nevada, and Oregon. And in February, our own local drag story time was uh, celebrating Black History Month in Tempe was canceled because of a bond threat. Uh, There's also the rise in violent attacks on queer nightclubs like Club Q in Colorado Springs and the 2016 shooting at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Um, David, why do you think the violence against our community has escalated? Um, You already explained the reasons why. Um, And John Kavanaugh is going to whine again. He whined the last time that I called him out publicly on this. Um, And, um, you know, tried to play the victim card. But yeah, it's these bills um, are putting this in a cycle. And I'll say, first of all, we've done Drag Story Hour for four years. We've dealt with protesters um, and things like that since the beginning. So that's not necessarily new, but it definitely has increased in the last year. And yeah, a big part of it is, you know, this, the Fox News cinematic universe, you know, creates this um, feedback loop of they push these false narratives um, politicians glom onto that, you know, for political gain that pushes these narratives more and more, you know, into the, um, conversation and that encourages these violent attacks that encourages, um, you know, these people, um, you know, if you literally think that drag story hour, you know, is grooming children for child abuse, which is what these people are saying, um, you know, it kind of makes sense, you know, to, you know, call in a bomb threat, um, which just, you know, illustrates how, like, absurd this kind of stuff is. Um, and so that's why we've had a big increase. We've also had a big increase. The other reason, which also ties into why these these bills are coming up now, is you have these groups like Mom for, Moms for Liberty, um, the groups like that, um, which are funded by the very well-funded right-wing um, donor network, um, places like Alliance Defending Freedom, which is right up the road here in Scottsdale. Um, and they were organized originally to fight mask mandates and vaccine mandates and things like that. And then they had to find a new target after the mask mandates and vaccine mandates went away. And they focused on drag. They focused on uh, trans kids. And yeah, ADF, what they do, they sit up in Scottsdale all day and they create these bills and they send them out to their legislators around the country. And there's the reason why there's, you listed off four or five different you know bills banning drag that basically do the same thing, but are slightly different because they know they're unconstitutional. So it's throw it against the wall and see what sticks, you know, see what's going to actually go through. And that just, again, perpetuates this narrative and perpetuates um, and encourages people who want to do violence 
um, shows them that they are, you know, they have the support of, you know, elected officials and, you know, very powerful people and it encourages them. I mean, it's the same thing that, you know, it's why January 6th happened. You know, it's, it's the um, same exact dynamic happening. If it's okay, I'd like to also add mm-hmm. that with that, you know, talking about like the, the media consumption mm-hmm. and how that really influences how people think about other people, especially those different from them. Um, it really is strategic in how the attack on schools, right? Glisten Arizona focuses specifically on K-12 education and the attack on schools and what is taught in schools, how things are taught in schools. You know, the essential removal of critical thinking helps enable this blind acceptance of just false narratives, like you're saying. So I think it all is very strategic and plays hand in hand. Yeah, the I think that it is very interesting how this particular organization that David was talking about went from mass mandates mm-hmm. to drag story hour and how those things are interconnected some way in the politicizing uh, of, of bodies, of people, of identities. Yeah. And in between was critical race theory. That, right. that was like the, the, the transition. That was so, the yeah. bri- right. mm-hmm. Well, race is always the bridge to sexuality right. <laughs> yeah. and gender identity, of course. Um, so the LGBTQ... Uh, IA plus community, uh, as noticed in the name alone, is unique in that it embodies so many different identities. Um, As one might observe from the Arizona state bills, which specifically target trans people and drag performers, some identities are targeted more or differently than others. Rebecca, um, how does the diversity of this community play a role in the success and failures of advocacy efforts? Awesome question. I, I want to reframe it a little bit, though, because the systems, uh, the value-based system of success and failure um, is a little limited if we're not defining it very clearly. And so if we can reframe it to more of the opportunities and challenges that come with LGBTQIA plus community building, I think that is actually a, a really interesting question. Um, because when we think about LGBTQIA people in general is while there are different identities within that spectrum, within that community, each of those individuals also have multiple other identities, right? So we have to acknowledge race, gender, sex, age, um, ability, things like that as well. And so when we think of the the diversity, I think some of the, the challenges and opportunities are really whether or not those within the community are really seriously actively dismantling systems and institutions that continue to oppress, that continue to reinforce white supremacy or ableism or sexism. And so doing that active work can be challenging because not everyone is up to the task. But I think it's important because we have to go beyond just representation, beyond just inclusion, because that's not enough. Because you can see like plenty of representation and people be included in spaces and not feel welcome or be included in spaces that they don't want any part of because it's part of a system that inherently is oppressive. And so I think that's important to acknowledge is that there's, there's all these things. And so um, I think the challenge is, will people be willing to do that? It's hard work. It's not easy. It takes a lot of internal work first and then to be able to, to work towards dismantling those systems. Because, I mean, oftentimes tokenism is you want my body without yep. my voice. Yep. Right. And so understanding exactly. that, <laughs> often understanding that means that you have done, like you said, a lot of internal work. Can I add a little on that, too? Um, 
Also, I think the focus on you know trans people in particular is also a very coordinated effort to split the community. Um, in these anti-LGBT groups, they they realize they lost on same-sex marriage. Like they took the L on that one, um, and they realize that you know your average uh, straight person doesn't really care about same-sex marriage. Like the you know the polling all shows that it's like not a winning issue anymore. It's not a good way to get keep the fundraising dollars coming in by like scaremongering about same-sex marriage. So now what you see them doing is trying to cleave off trans people in particular and a lot of the other um, traditionally more marginalized identities, intersex people, um, and tell the, you know, an audience of presumably, you know, primarily um, cisgender, well-off, primarily white, like gays and lesbians, um, you got yours with same-sex marriage. And, you know, um, so you go assimilate now and, you know, trans uh, rights isn't your issue. And, you see there's certain kind of conservative like gay commentators and stuff that are pushing this narrative of, you know, um, trans people aren't part of our community. Um, and one thing I think is really great that Glisten does, and we try to do with Drag Story Hour, um, is, you know, our education um, with our young people is very much focused on explaining why that is not the case, <laughs> you know, and, you know, very focused on this intersectional idea of, um, you know, both everyone, you know, within the queer community, like our fates are interconnected and recognizing within the queer community, not only do you have the different identities um, of, you know, gender and sexuality, but race, class, you know, um, all those other issues as well. And the great thing is, especially among the young people that I, you know, I see and have, you know, worked with volunteering at Listen with Drag Story Hour, like, they don't buy that narrative. <laughs> that attempt to divide the community is not working. Like, you see a lot of people wanting to intentionally do the work to make the community as inclusive as possible. And so that's been a very heartening thing to see. And I think it has a lot to do with just as language evolves, mm -hmm. right? Like you were talking about earlier, it's cyclical, mm -hmm. right? So before it was the AIDS crisis, right? And then it was gay marriage. And now I think as more folks, as you know, language grows and evolves, right? trans, non-binary folks, that language has evolved more and more over time. And so with that comes new understanding, not just from within the community, but now it's circulating mass culture. And so now more people are knowing, oh, what's this trans? And it's a new thing to be afraid of, um, which is silly. But <laughs> well, it, it just so reminds me, I will never forget when SB 1070 came out and Al Sharpton spoke at Pilgrim's Rest and he spoke about the division uh, between um, immigrants and, and, and pe other people of color and how that division um, was created by a narrative of, oh, this is not your problem. Mm -hmm. um, however, then Transqueer Pueblo was very instrumental uh, in being like, not only uh, do you have this one identity of being uh, uh, an immigrant, but you also have um, the, the the queer identity as well. And so you have all of these layers. And so that that's, like you said, it's cyclical, and that's exactly what it made me think of. Before we go too far, I, I just want to back up a little bit for our listeners um, and Rebecca, you mentioned about reframing uh, the question uh, about successes and failures more to opportunities and challenges. But you mentioned something about systems and institutions. Can you give a couple of examples of what you mean by systems and institutions? Sure. I mean, for me, my 
like the greatest experience I have um, as far as breadth of experience is with nonprofits. And when we think of the nonprofit industrial complex, it's it's a thing and it's not always great. It tries to do good, serve the, the people, but it's not always done the right way. And so, and especially in grassroots organizing and and community building, it can be challenging when some of the institutions within the, even the nonprofit uh, world it aren't aren't walking the walk, aren't doing what is inclusive and actually doing that inner work, right? And so there are certain community spaces where while the goal might be to mobilize folks to a certain cause, it's not safe for certain individuals to be in that space to help that cause. And so how do we institutionally do better, right? And some of them, they're not institutions that we want to be a part of. Right. And I, I, I'm going to refrain from refrain from saying names, but um, I feel like you're subtweeting a lot I'm right now. <laughs> but, you know, I, I you know, I've I've worked with multiple nonprofits and, you know, it's a testament to Glisten Arizona that I've been with them for four years that I believe in the work that we're doing. So. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say, can you, in a sentence or two, explain what the um, industrial complex uh, of nonprofits is? Um, so if you can just, for our listeners, yeah, ensure the, that they understand that. Sure. The, the nonprofit industrial complex is just really fancy money laundering at times. Not always, but at times it can be. Um, tax write-offs um, are a big way to, to save on... Uh, the wealthy, the wealthy can save by <laughs> making large donations. Um, and also when we think of the work, it, it, some nonprofits can be at fault for saying, we know what this community needs without asking the community. And so when that is the intention and the operation of a nonprofit where we know best, so let us give you what you need, it's never going to work. It's not serving the community. And so that that can be part of what's wrong with the nonprofit industrial complex. Thank you for such insightful uh, responses. Um, we've been kind of on the clarification track, so let's keep that going. Um, y'all have both mentioned Glisten. Hawaii. This is Arizona, Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> y'all both mentioned uh, Glisten, Arizona, um, as well as Drag Story Hour here in Arizona. And this, these are two topics that a lot of people have probably heard very negative things about because of the current political climate. Um, so can we go ahead and uh, add some clarification to both of these organizations? You know, what do they do and what do you want the listeners to know about these nonprofits and uh, groups? Let me start. Yeah, so, excuse me. Yeah, like you said in the intro, I am... Um, the president for Drag Story Hour Arizona, which is a local chapter of Drag Story Hour. Um, the Drag Story Hour organization was started in 2015 um, basically to create more um, inclusive um, LGBT-centric uh, um, library story hour programming. Our founder, the author Michelle T, was taking her kids to programs in San Francisco. And the books they were reading in the library story times were not inclusive, did not have families that looked like theirs and came up with the idea to do an inclusive story hour. And instead of having the like princesses and mermaids that normally come to like the um, the story hour at the library, having drag performers. And that's basically where it started. And so yeah, now like we like to say often that drag story hour is exactly what it sounds like. It's drag performers um, reading books. Um, we 
here at Drag Story Hour, Arizona. Um, primarily do events at um, bookstores and coffee shops and sort of uh, businesses like that that invite us in. Um, and we do events primarily for young kids, um, you know, in the like three to eight range Though we've been branching out recently doing more like young adult programming because um, we have a lot of, we you know, realize we have an audience for that as well. Um, and yeah, it's a, you know, literacy program. We read books, we talk about the books. Um, the books are very centered on, you know, sort of LGBT history and things like that. And then as well, we do Black History Month, like you mentioned. Um, we try to do, um, you know, just very diverse offerings. Um, basically, like any book that's been banned in Florida, you know, um, is like the, the stuff that we focus on. Awesome. And uh, Glisten Arizona um, doesn't sound like what it does. <laughs> so good branding. Uh, <laughs> Glisten Arizona, uh, we are a nonprofit that has a mission of creating safer schools for LGBTQ plus youth um, in K through 12. And so we do that a few different ways. We have a training program where we work to support educators and how to make more inclusive classrooms. Um, we have a policy arm that works to creating in in comprehensive and inclusive policies at at the district level and even at the state level. So we even have some folks working at the state ledge. Um, and then we also have our um, inclusive curriculum. So lesson plans for educators. And my favorite part is our supportive students. And so part of what I get to do with Glisten is work with our Shine team. Shout out Shine team. Um, they're awesome. Uh, they're an awesome group of uh, high school students and they are learning and, and growing as activists. Um, and um, one of our strengths, I think, is our ever-improving um, mindset towards anti-adultism, which means the um, uh, dismantling of oppression towards those that are under 18 here in, in the U.S., where that is an oppressed group because they don't have legal rights of their own. So um, that's what I'm really proud of. And, and they're hosting a pride prom because they want to spread queer joy, which I'm very excited about. So, yeah, that's what Glisten Arizona is. Thank you so much for that clarification. Oh, gosh, that makes me miss them so much more. Um, so we, this is actually a really good transition into our next question because oftentimes when people are talking about uh, marginalized groups and specifically the LGBTQIA plus community, um, and as we were talking about, we are kind of, we are kind of at this uh, seemingly uh, psychological and political warfare with our communities. Um, and when we allow um, certain groups to control the narrative um, of these communities, we kind of lose who we are and we lose the positivity um, that we strive for. And so uh, in order to kind of counter that narrative and counter that discourse, um, let's go ahead and actually talk about the um, positives and the triumphs of the communities um, so that we can focus on how we thrive. Um, so what is the legacy of queer and trans activism and how has it contributed to improving the lives of not only our community, but also uh, the U.S. society in general? Um, sure. Um, yeah, that's a very big question. And yeah, I would say, you know, in terms of in terms of legacy, one of the biggest things you see um, and what you see happening now um, is this legacy of intentional community building um, that when you're a part of you know, um, this community, you are shut out of, you know, um, kind of other communities um, in traditional spaces. You know, a lot of people in the LGBT community, for example, don't have good relationships with like their birth family, um, you know, things like that, um, feel shut out at work and school and things like that and have to build spaces for themselves and um, build community for themselves. 
And there's a constant work of balancing, you know, sort of the kind of at the barricades fighting of, you know, responding to like this bad legislation, um, trying to change people's minds, electing politicians that are going to, you know, um, enact good policies, but then also at the same time having to build spaces kind of within the community and kind of... um, Becca, uh, what she was talking about with Glisten is like actually a good example of that. Of like, on the one hand, they're doing things like policy uh, and you know and those pieces, but then another big part of what they do is just creating the space for these actual queer youth to come together and do things like Pride Prom um, and you know learn um, you know about their history and how to be activists and all that kind of stuff. And so yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And I know a lot of the work that. Um, uh, Glisten does, and a lot of stuff that we try to um, highlight in Story Hour and the books that we read highlight that part of the history too, of you know, kind of intentional community building um, and creating spaces so that you know, if you're just fighting all the time, you know, if you're just yelling at John Kavanaugh all day, like you get burned out like real quickly, and so you know, we try to create spaces where. All of us, but particularly like our young people, don't have to think about John Kavanaugh, don't have to think about these bills. Um, and, you know, they see that there are other people like them. There are other people that are supportive of them. So, you know, one of the biggest things we do with Drag Story Hour is just, you know, bringing people together. Um, you know, people come to our events and, you know, they meet other families, again, that look like theirs and where they thought like they were the only one because they're the only one in their block or their neighborhood. Um so I think that's the biggest legacy that we can learn from and try to pass down, you know, um, to the younger generations. Yes. Uh, queer joy is on the path to liberation. So I think as as much as possible, those spaces are so important, like the Pride Prom that came out of a need that the team assessed that we need just queer joy. We just need queer joy because times are tough. And if we don't take the time and make the space to allow for that, then we'll just keep running ourselves into the ground. And, you know, I think same with Drag Story Hour, right? You're creating queer joy in those spaces of, of seeing someone that looks like you read, seeing other people in your atmosphere that, that identify like you do, have similar experiences that you do. So I think that's super important. Um, and I'll also add that I think, you know, the, one of our other legacies is um, queer people, a lot of artists are queer. So we built this city in the words of Tiffany. Uh, so um, I think it's really, I, I also teach screenwriting, I teach in film. And so I think what's really cool that we're seeing, um, especially in the last few years, is some really great content, really great content, really great stories that feel inclusive, diverse, and just powerful and not depressing or you know, just tragic, right? So so often we're used to that story. And so I think, you know, one of our legacies too is is now that we're seeing more representation in writers' rooms in the film industry, we're seeing stories that feel authentic, that that just further the positive representation that our young people are seeing and and allowing them to feel comforted in who they are. So I think that's also like a really big mm-hmm. thing for me as a as a film person. And I'll just um to add one more thing on that, talking about sort of history and culture and about like the legacy, um, I do a lot of um, 
queer history stuff and give talks and things like that. And one of the stories I like to tell to kind of highlight um, what we're just talking about here is of um, the GAA Firehouse. So GAA was the Gay Activist Alliance, which was one of the first kind of post-Stonewall organizations. So one thing that people misunderstand about Stonewall, actually, is that the most important aspect of it wasn't the riot at the bar, like on June 28th. It was the fact that that was the spark. And in the year after Stonewall, there were literally hundreds of uh, LGBT organizations that were founded, like in New York in particular, but all over the country. And Gay Activist Alliance was one of the main ones. And they actually rented an old, like, rundown firehouse in New York. This was New York in the 70s when real estate was cheap. Um, And it was their, you know, meeting place. And, you know, they would have, they would organize rallies and political events and stuff like that. But they'd also have disco dance parties on Saturday night. Um, And, like, they would do it, you know, there would be a fundraiser. But it was also just, yeah, space to come together. And this was still the era when... Actual gay bars were mostly illegal. You couldn't you lose your liquor license. So they would have these events, you know, these uh, private events, um, and they would do, you know, movie screenings. Um, the book, The Celluloid Closet, which is kind of the urtext of queer media studies by Vince Russo, that grew out of film screenings that he would do at the GAA Firehouse, um, you know, showing all these old films. Um, and so, like, that's always been a big inspiration to me that they weren't just doing the like, you know protesting and, you know, uh, things like that. We're creating space um, for people to come together as a community because you need that to, you know, kind of replenish the well to be able to go out and do the other stuff. (laughs) And I think what's really interesting about that is, you know, I've heard some folks say like, oh, well, there's more acceptance. There's more inclusion, especially the queer teens of today. Like they're so accepting of each other. They're they're not going to need spaces, social spaces for just them to gather, um, which is is funny because with GLSEN, we support GSAs or Gender Sexuality Alliances, which are LGBTQ affinity groups in schools, um, mostly high schools. And I don't I don't ever see the GSA or the student club that supports or just as a social space for LGBTQ students. I don't ever see that really going away. I think it will always be valuable, even even as acceptance grows. Are there things that our listeners can do to support um, uh, LGBTQ plus IA um, communities um, in the efforts that that are currently going on or that are not going on? Awesome question. Um, I would like to like start with just saying like find out what you're interested in, find out what you're passionate about, and see what organizations are doing work that aligns with that. So like for instance, a lot of the volunteers we get at Glisten Arizona are educators, are parents of students, right? That or or are part of the community and they're more senior and they want to give back because they wish they had that when they were a kid. Um, and so I think really kind of doing a self-reflection of what do I care about? What am I good at? What do I like to do that I can offer my skills to? Um, because it's not always storming the Capitol. Well, <laughs> it's not always going to the Capitol and testifying in front of a committee. It's it's also making calls, doing a phone bank. It's also supporting students. Like my work is directly with students and that's that's where I found my my strength. And so I think it's just finding where you can give and and knowing that it's going to look different for everyone. It's not a one size fits all thing. Um, and so I think it's really important to to really self-reflect and think about what you want to do and how you want to do it and who you want to do it with and see if your values align. Yeah, this is actually something I've, 
been thinking about a lot lately. Um, so with Drag Story Hour in particular, um, a cycle that we have gotten into is, you know, um, we will ha have an event coming up that the, you know, um, hate groups, the bigots find out about and post on social media and they want to show up and protest. And it's often these, you know, proud boys, these groups who, you know, want to show up and intimidate. And then you get a lot of people who, you know, want to be supporters of us. And um, the first instinct that a lot of people have to support us and support these events is to show up and yell at the Proud Boys. I'm going to say right now, I'll go into the camera, do not do this. <laughs> it's like, please, for the love of God. Um, and, you know, this is something we're in the middle of dealing with right now with an event. So that's why it's like it's on my mind. Um, and this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about a little earlier um, of activism is not always yelling at the bigots, you know, um, and I would argue, you know, work to make less of your activism yelling at the bigots, whether that's on Twitter, whether that's showing up in person, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, um, it can feel very viscerally good in the moment, but can be counterproductive in a lot of ways, including primarily with these events, uh, why we discourage any of these kind of like counter protests and things that happen. A, it makes the event less safe. It just creates more chaos, you know, more, you know, potential for something bad to happen. And also it'll, it's doing the work of the other side for them. The whole point of doing these things is for publicity, is to you know trigger the libs, all that kind of stuff. And so when you're responding, you know you're giving them that stuff. Um, so I would say you know much better way to support. You know, first of all, I always tell people when I come to a story hour event, you know, bring your kid and actually attend the story hour. Great, please do that. Um, attend our you know virtual events online as well. You want to donate money to us so we can buy more books and do more events. You can do that. That's great. If you have a business that you want to host an event with, um, you know, send us an email. Um, creating more spaces to actually be able to do events. Uh, that is the way that we succeed. Um, and I'm talking about Drag Story Hour here in particular, but I think that goes for all of this kind of stuff. Support things like Pride Prom. Support these things uh, where people are creating spaces, especially for the LGBT youth to you know, um, you know, be safe and thrive. Um, you know, buy, you know, buy all the books that are banned in Florida. Give them to every kid you know for you know, their uh, Christmas presents and birthday presents and stuff like that. Um, one thing I've been telling people lately, if you didn't know this already, if you have a library card with your local library, you can request books. Go request all the books again that are banned in Florida um, and you know, have them put them on the shelves. Uh, one of our student groups, Support Equality AZ Schools, which is an activist group um, out of the East Valley, which overlaps a lot with um, Becca's Glisten group. Some of the members are in both. They've just started a little free library program where they've actually built a little free library, which they're going to take to all the school board meetings that they go to and to events. And they're asking um, people to donate books. They've already had, I think, over 70 books donated. And so you can go on their Instagram, Support Equality Arizona Schools, and they've got an Amazon wish list. You can buy a book and send it to them for their library. Um, like those things, I think, are much more productive than yelling at the Proud Boys in a parking lot, you know. <laughs> I think so often with activism work, people think it's the glitzy, glammy things mm -hmm. of being on the news mm -hmm. or the yelling and and all that jazz. But so much of activism is behind the scenes and so much of that work is unseen. Um, and so I think that's something to really remember is is while I said use self-reflection and center your skills, don't center yourself in the work. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not about you. It's about 
what you're trying to support and and that cause. So, thank you for that. You know, it, it's that puts a lot of um, perspective um, on what activism really is, and it really is. It's about the community. It's not just about us as individuals, even though we as individuals are incredibly important. It's about the community and the people around us. And so, I think that a simple yet difficult rule of thumb when it comes to activism is to simply love yourself and love those around you. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being on OK School Me. Um, we are so grateful that y'all have showed up and talked about LGBTQIA plus activism with us. And we hope that you have a wonderful, 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 wonderful life. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Queer joy to you. Queer <laughs> joy. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'd like to take a brief moment to thank this episode's participants, Professors David Boyles and Rebecca Semmet, as well as our sponsor, Arizona PBS, for making this podcast possible. Throughout this episode, we touched on a multitude of topics that seem to span an array of academic fields of thought, like law, politics, media, health and wellness, geography, language, history, and more. When we think of LGBTQIA plus activism, it is nearly impossible to think within just a single lens because it interacts with such a variety of ideologies and structures of thought. Because of this, it is beneficial and even crucial to think through an interdisciplinary lens. As a refresher, interdisciplinary means relating to more than one branch of knowledge. It's the way that we look at a social problem, set of social relations, and or phenomenon using multiple disciplinary perspectives. By thinking this way, one creates new possibilities for change, problem solving, and ways to address contemporary social issues from multiple perspectives. So let's use this way of thinking to guide our understanding of LGBTQIA plus activism. For this episode's example, we are going to utilize a queer lens to adopt an intersection of geography, sociology, and design, which we will then use to showcase a prime example of LGBTQIA plus activism here at ASU. So bear with me and let's get started. When one thinks of geography, we usually think about physical features of the Earth, like oceans, rivers, mountains, and valleys. But when we add the study of humans to the field, or sociology, we get a branch of geography called human geography, which centers spatial relationships between human communities, cultures, economies, and their interactions with the environment. When we reach into the field of design, we can find a concept called placemaking, which is a multifaceted approach to the planning, design, and management of public spaces. So how can we package all of these ideas into a tangible and practical concept? With our queer goggles on, we can combine the idea of spatial relationships with human communities and the environments around them with the idea of designing intentional spaces for the people that we utilize it to create queer placemaking. This framework is fairly new, with scholars like Gabby Unipon, Ricardo Milhouse, and Marlon Bailey who have written works that highlight the intersections of space, place, queerness, and even race. For example, in Space's Freedom, Places Security, a dissertation by Joyce F. Clapp, she writes, physical places are defined through our interactions with them and our interactions with each other, and human beings are governed by the physical spaces they exist in. Clapp is clearly making the connections of how space and place are significant to the people that occupy them, so it only makes sense to utilize that intentional placemaking framework when creating places of inclusion and safety. Another example of this is reflected in Marlon Bailey's article, Engendering Space, where he examines the ways in which Black LGBT members of the ballroom community create Black queer space to contend with their spatial exclusion from the marginalization within public and private space in urban Detroit, Michigan. Here, we see a perfect example of queer placemaking that is not only creating welcoming and inclusive space to publicly marginalized people, is highlighting and celebrating their cultures and identities. 
To return to LGBTQIA plus activism in Arizona, we can utilize the concept of queer placemaking to guide our efforts to create, for example, the first LGBTQ plus community center at Arizona State University. According to the Project for Public Spaces, placemaking is community-driven, adaptable, inclusive, context-specific, transformative, collaborative, and sociable, which is exactly what a community center is supposed to be. So by getting involved and utilizing the frame of queer placemaking, we can create spaces that center marginalized people while building safe and endearing communities of culture and celebration. This is what LGBTQIA plus activism is all about. The goal of this episode was to bring awareness to LGBTQIA plus activism and its continued legacy of promoting equality, equity, and justice for all people, including sexual and gender diverse individuals. This activist work ranges from making policy changes locally and nationally, to resisting forms of violence that manifest itself in areas of employment, healthcare, education, media, and a multitude of other ways. Here in Arizona, we have experienced a wave of anti-trans and drag rhetoric that has given rise to bills that would hinder the freedoms of people in the performing arts. So LGBTQIA activism is needed now, just as it was in the past. With over 400 anti-LGBT bills being proposed around the US, what can be done? By speaking with our guests, we learn that LGBTQIA activism can be a response to cyclical patterns of discrimination, which often coincide with increased visibility and awareness of queer culture and identities, as we see with trans people in drag, for example. Despite the fact that both expressions have manifested themselves around the world for a long time, we are still experiencing a sudden political impetus to discriminate against queer and trans communities. By using mass media as a tool, groups are able to create a narrative around LGBTQIA people that are often completely uninformed and misleading. This even ties into efforts towards our education system to prevent critical thinking which can further enable blind and false narratives. However, though the landscape may seem daunting, it is imperative that we shift our focus to the positives and triumphs that activism has paved the way for. Groups and organizations like Listen, the Human Rights Campaign, Drag Story Hour, Support Equality Arizona Schools, and Equality Arizona are going beyond just representation and inclusion and are actively making efforts to resist anti-LGBT motions while also creating intentional spaces that center queer individuals. In doing so, this activism allows for spaces of queer joy that equally act as spaces of pride and resilience. In the same way that we can tap into our own interests to bridge other fields with interdisciplinary thinking, we can use those same interests to align ourselves with activist endeavors that produce positive social transformation. Now, we recognize that LGBTQIA plus activism is a topic that spans much farther than what can be discussed within the scope of this podcast. So to ensure that our listeners leave with more than they came with, we've included a list of local and national resources in this episode's show notes. We can also find links to relevant groups mentioned throughout this episode. We hope that today's discussion, along with the resources provided, bring you new knowledge and insights into your life that inspires you and your endeavors. And remember, regardless of who you are or what you do, Regardless of what you study or practice, we are all part of something bigger than ourselves. So why not tap into that bigger piece? Utilize your studies, your practices, your trades, and unique perspectives to think across landscapes to create new waves of change. Get activated, get involved, and help create a better world for those to come. Thanks for listening to OK, School Me. This podcast was produced in the Ed Plus Studios in Tempe, Arizona. It is executive produced by Kyra Trent with additional production and editorial support from Dr. Mako Fitzward, Dr. Selena Osuna, Jamal Brooks-Hawkins, Amber Green, Hannah Grabowski, and Kyle McKinney. 
For more information about this podcast, please refer to the show notes and follow us on Twitter and YouTube at ASUSTL.